Investing insights with Right Property Group. Exploring trends in real estate and helping property investors gain financial security. G'day everyone, how are you going? Uh, thanks for joining us on Investing Insights with the Right Property Group. Phil Tarrant here, co-host. We've been doing this for a while. I'm joined with my partners in crime, the brains of this outfit, Victor Kumar, Stephen Waters, Steve Waters, directors, Right Property Group. Gentlemen, how are you going? You well? We're well, we're well. Everything we're well. is yeah. good. Yeah? I'm oh. glad I didn't turn over with a hangover over here because with the electric blue suit. You like that's, that? That's really flashy, mate. Mate, you don't want to see me walk too fast. There's sparks <laughs> coming out of it, and I don't want to be responsible for any more of these fires, right? Our farmers are, our farmers are doing it tough right now, so our, yeah. our thoughts are with them, and you know, we're recording this on a day where I think the weather's going to get worse again, so it's not yeah. over by any means. So uh, think about our farmers and what they're going through and support them any way you can. A lot of these farmers are also property investors as well. So They are. Whether they're sort of, you know, investing in their local areas or investing in the big smokes, Sydney, Melbourne, et cetera, um, you know, trying to deal with all of those challenges. It's going to be a pain for some people. So help out where you can. Steve, you're from the land, aren't you, originally? Yeah, originally. People don't know about this, about you. No, it was a different life. So we were, were anywhere from the back of Burke all the way through down to Mudgeen and everywhere in between. How hard is it, farming? Is it tough, tough slog? It's very rewarding from the farmers I know, but it's hard graft. It's a way of life. Mm. I think if you asked any, any farmer, it's something that they enjoy. It's ingrained in them. It's in their DNA. But it is a it's a hard graft. It's a mm. real challenge. And you know, when you get a situation like we've just had now where the fires are ripping through a lot of the countryside, yeah, you know, this is their their future income now decimated. Mm. Not just their asset, but their cash flow as well. And it'll take years and years and years to get back on their feet. So everyone should dig deep and help. And I don't think can. a lot of people actually appreciate that, you know, if you lose your crop or you lose your Ability to create income, revenue, wealth, your cattle, for example, you can't just replace that tomorrow. No, it's a 10-year plan. Mm. It really is. It is devastating to see. And it's not just you know, those that have the farms, but the local communities as well, because a lot of the the economy, the local economies are driven by you know, the surrounding farms with mm. expenditure and what have you. So it, this is really a devastating moment in time and people should dig deep where they can and help out where they can. This is one of the great things about Australia is this sense of community and, and everyone banding together in times of challenges and heartaches so uh, mm. i think we're fortunate that in australia we have that mindset and uh people will help get involved and support so yeah let's move on but anyway to our farmers hope you're uh, hanging in there and if you know any stories around uh investment properties and the way you're sort of dealing with that make sure you get in touch with us uh, victor questions questions at right property we're really keen to share those stories anyway this is an interesting industry you guys are in i guess we're in I don't know if yeah, I'm you're a, a part of it. Am I allowed to be part of yeah, it? Yeah, you, you can be at this. Oh, I'm just a commentator of or <laughs> originator of stuff to do with the property investment. But, um, you know, for me, it's been a privilege being part of Smart Property Investment all these years, you know, which is nearly a decade now watching the evolution of this sector of real estate. And by this sector of real estate, I'm talking about sort of this property investment industry. Mm. And there's always been an industry there. There's uh, And it's sort of moved in, in cycles and roundabouts. But, you know, the way I would – Offer my narrative on the last decade is that we've seen this, and I probably call it explosion in people who are pursuing careers in property investment, and that's right across everything from accounting and mortgage broking. Mortgage broking over that ten year period has gone from it's exponential. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, sixty plus percent of all mortgages are now done by mortgage brokers. Way back then, it was only twenty percent. So you know, mm. there's a lot there, and I would mark it with this growth in this whole buyers agency profession. You know, way back when there was only a handful of you people. In this now, yeah. it's attracting a lot of people. I think, which was, I think we were the first few. Yeah, we were in the yeah. first sort of handful of people yeah. way back mm. when, 
it just wasn't a there was really not really an industry then it was a there was zero it was industry, a zero really. industry. Yeah. it was just people going what's a buyer's agent do yeah. you know hopefully now people are a lot more informed around it and you know maybe that's the role that i've helped play is sort of communicating you know this whole notion of as a property investor surrounding yourself with talented people that do this for a living but you know i think we've been working with you guys now it's got to be eight eight years or so it's coming yeah, it has to be years. there yeah eight years yeah. um yeah, and you've been tuning into this, you know, I've bought all my properties through a buyer's agent and right property groups, hence the reason why I'm happy to do this podcast with you guys, because I think you do a good job sometimes. <laughs> do you know what? See, Vic, this, is, you, this is your fault, Vic, because you went up the whole Gary Glitter electric blue suit and I knew it's that he was going to come blue. back with something. Air, it's called Air Force Blue. It's what all the fashionable people are wearing in the spring racing season. Was seat. it on sales at Lowe's, was it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah where? <laughs> It was at the Lowe's Outlet Centre. I got it. Yeah, proudly sponsored by Lowe's. <laughs> Leave Lowe's alone, by the way. Great Aussie brand Lowe's. I've been wearing Lowe's clothes for years and years. So don't mm. you, with your elitist buyer's agent. European look. European look. Yeah. And that's Phil talking with his $200 shirt on, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so what I want to do, now I've got you guys in the studio, is that, you know, you've been at this for about 20 odd years. You've been a big part of the story of the evolution of, of this buyer's agent's profession in Australia. And I think this is really only the beginning. It's got a long, long way to go. But I just want to pick your brain about the lessons that you've learned over, you know, 20 years of investing and the good, the bad and the ugly, right? Like a lot of the good. I've seen a lot of the good. You've been very supportive of my journey in property. But I get to see also the bad and the ugly of property investment. And, you know, one of the big things about smart property investment and the relationship that we have with this market is we want people to make more informed decisions. And I still see people making a lot of ill-informed investment decisions. So I've counted up. I've tried to work it out how many market cycles you and Victor have probably seen, Steve, and it's probably over 20, Yep. you know, over different states. So, you know. It's a bit of experience. Yeah, a bit of experience. They reckon that there's a market cycle every sort of seven years or so, right? So if you think you've seen three through New South Wales, three through Queensland, three through Victoria. So you've seen everything. So let's get into it. And if you guys are okay with it, the good and bad, the ugly, 20 years of experience, what you guys have learned. And as a journalist, you know, I like lists and stuff like that. So I'm going to do 10 of them. 10. <laughs> That's okay. right. Now, Victor, have you got enough information to last 10? I suppose we can draw on our experience. In your and, experience? And, yep. All right, so, I'm going to so see So long as you've got the list, we're fine. So I've penned a quick list here, and, and we'll just use this as talking points. And remember, everyone, this is just a, a general chit-chat. We're not giving any specific advice in this, but we'll have some discussions around it. So just keep that in mind. Point number one, Victor, lessons learned. I want to talk about cash flow management. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to start with that one because it's pretty important. It is very important. It is absolutely one of the most critical things, pretty much like oxygen, right? So if you haven't got the cash flow, you can't live to fight another day. Most of the time when people start investing, they're looking at perhaps the wrong side of the equation. They're looking at just the equity side of it and how quickly I can I can show up the equity, how quickly can I... Uh, own five properties or how quickly can I make a million dollars in equity and they don't pay any attention to the other side of the equation which is the cash flow so one of the things that I've learned right from day one is that you need to be looking at both sides of the equation not only just the cash flow but the equity side of it as well because if you totally focus on just the cash flow then you've got your Port Hadland scenario happening right mm. because you're then chasing yield and then you're not looking at okay where does the equity end up in one year two years ten years time right in, in terms of growth in terms of being able to offload that property if you needed to or in terms of being able to leverage off that property down the track so the bank's not coming knocking on a door if you're losing substantial equity and i think also the interpretation of what cash flow management is as opposed to cash flow 
positive or, yeah do different you know, positive things. gearing or whatever it may be and and a lot of rhetoric around the market at the moment is finding those cash flow mm-hmm. positive properties but one of the lessons i learned early on was around how i did the numbers and being honest you've got to keep it real you, you have to keep it, it real yeah. and so uh, let's take a really simple example that i draw equity from my home at my principal place of residence to use as deposits for another investment property but i'm not accounting for that 20 percent being borrowed mm-hmm. money as well so i can actually stack the figures to make it look as though it's positive cash flow not taking into account any vacancy not taking into account the r&m and certainly not taking into account the borrowed funds to get into that property to begin with mm. and then when i recycle the debt out of that investment property that i'm really once again an over 100 percent lvr position if there's been no growth so when we talk about cash flow management, it's really about doing the numbers. Total exposure. Total exposure and being real. Yep. So it's really easy to me, cash flow management. My real simple way of viewing this is that property, to create wealth in property takes time and you need to hold on to your properties. So cash flow management allows you to hold on to your properties so you can get the benefits of the wealth creation. So it is different from positive cash flow, right? Yeah. This is cash flow management in terms of your affordability. But throughout my investing experience, it, this word has been bended around a lot in terms of affordability. Mm. But no one seems to be able to define it really succinctly. It is affordability to your level, not in terms of price level in terms of property, but how much you can afford on a weekly basis to hold on to your portfolio. Let's move on. Point number two, and I think you've learned the hard way around this, Steve. I don't know if Victor has, and I haven't yet experienced this, off-the-plan purchasing. Mm. You've bought off-the-plan, haven't you? I have. What have you learned about off-the-plan purchasing? And by the way, this I'm not going to beat up off-the-plan purchasing, but what no. have you learned? In short, don't do it. Well, you can then. Yeah, I can. You're the I'm speaking from real experience. Yeah. Look, there are some people that are quite successful at off-the-plan. It just wasn't me. Mm. because, And I've told the story before, but it's the service department off-the-plan in a holiday-let area, the trifecta of what not to do. And I did it. And I still own it today and it's still what I, worth what I paid for it 19, 18 years ago or whatever it was. However, in my case, if I hadn't have done that, I probably would have done it somewhere down the line of creating the portfolio. And it would have hurt worse. And it probably would have hurt worse. You know, I was fortunate to have a few quick wins beforehand. Mm-hmm. But look, I just think when I'm not in control of the time I put pen to paper to the time I settle, if that time is too long... Therefore, I have no control over the next two to three years and Mm -hmm. so many different things can change. For me, it's a speculative investment. Yeah. And it was from that moment on that I didn't speculate. I know a lot of people who've killed it in buying off the plan. And and if you're buying off the plan in a market that's going up, happy days. If you buy or you commit to a purchase off the plan at the peak of the market and markets go down, that's where people get hurt. And there's heaps of people. There's heaps of people. And I'll say right now where I live in the street that I'm on, they recently built a new block there and the person bought this three-bedroom apartment and they're selling it a lot less than what they paid for it. Yeah. Because they bought at the top of the market and where I am, things have dropped quite a lot lately. Mm -hmm. And conversely, though, if they had bought at the beginning of the cycle, they might have done all right. But this is where it's a speculation and there's too many things need to go right for you to be a winner in the end. And if it is even slightly wrong, what's the exit strategy for you? You still got to settle the property, otherwise mm-hmm. there's uh, there's damages incurred in terms yep. of financially. Mm. If you can get a loan. So I need to have the deposit. It needs to have gone up in value. I need to be able to get the finance. The finance loan to value ratio positions can't have changed. Lending conditions can't have changed. Lending, yeah, and my job or my income position can't have changed. So when I throw all of that into the pot, I'm better off at Kino. 
Quote, end quote. Off the plan <laughs> is like playing Keno, Steve Waters. <laughs> You're not going to live that one down, Steve. <laughs> you do like a bit of Keno, don't you? To see you there at the it, RSL, no. out at Rudy Hill. Do you know what? I'm too Vegas impatient. To the West. I'm too impatient no? for the number to spin. It's just like, come on, let's do this. What's oh, the next okay. number? Do you know it's age-related? So Steve's at that age now where he now starts playing Keno, right? So <laughs> he parks his Zimmer frame out <laughs> the right, front, yep. walks in. <laughs> I'm going to move on. I'm conscious of time here. All right, yeah. uh, Victor, this one's right up your alley this is point number three of lessons learned of 20 years in investing growth is never linear no it's never linear it's never linear. what does that most, mean most people expect their property to go up in value every single year mm. and if not this year then definitely next year but it's never that it's dependent on so many different factors and each suburb each state each area has got its own cycle within the greater property cycle so it could be that a suburb never does anything apart from waking up every 10 years, having a spurt of growth and then plateauing out again. Or it could be that the state itself, so let's take let's take Queensland as an example, Brisbane in particular. If you look at the cycle there, 12, 15 years, we haven't had any significant growth. The last time we had a big spike was 2008 and nine, where we had the largest spike that Queensland had for that era. Most people jumped in thinking that it'll do the same as your Sydney market or your Melbourne market being that it'll have a cycle every three, four years. Queensland never does that. It's more of a 10 to 12 year cycle. And we've been we've gone a little longer this time around because mm. no money was being spent on infrastructure and jobs creation. So we can't speculate and say that we will have growth every single year. Over 10 year snapshot, over a cycle, depending on how that cycle is defined in that area, you will get an average growth. And that's what most people hang their hat on to say that, okay, this year is going to go by 5% on average, but it's not 5% every year. Mm. It mm. could be that you had negative 5%, negative 10%, and then it catches up to make the averages to be 5%. And that's something that we really need to understand. And so when we are buying properties, we can't be hanging our hat in terms of revaluing it and going again unless we are forcing the value or unless we are really getting it at the bottom of the market and we've got all the hallmarks of the cycle restarting again. And see, this is this plays into the modelling scenario for mm-hmm. me too. Whilst I'm a, I'm a big fan of modelling and I think you need to do it because that's part of the strategy and your budgeting and what have you, if you're modelling on a, let's call it a, just a, a 6% mm-hmm. average growth and you need that year in, year yeah. out to fit your strategy or to fit your lifestyle or your or your cash flow, it's a really dangerous that's right. Hence scenario the, you're yeah, putting yourself in. That's right. Hence the flaw in most of the calculators, the property calculators out there and the, and the um, portfolio calculators out there is they are predicting a linear model, but it's not. And unfortunately, with property, whatever data we're looking at, we're looking at reverse-facing data to predict forward-facing growth. And therefore, there needs to be catalysts that come in. And this is where it comes back to, and Steve, you'll agree, that data is one thing but being on the ground and actually seeing movement and seeing the changes unfolding before it gets captured by the data is the best way to invest. Absolutely. And this all comes down to asset selection, right? Absolutely. You know, where where do you buy? When do you buy it? How do you buy it? You Correct. Know, and, yeah, which we've covered a lot on, mm-hmm. on this podcast over the years. So make sure you go and check it out. There's been really good podcasts around that, actually, around timing, market timing. Just find them wherever you're listening to this right now, wherever the feed is. Uh, all right, here we go, Steve. This one's for you, and you sort of touched on it beforehand. Point number four of lessons learned, speculation is fool's gold. Speculation is fool's gold. I like that. It is because 
There's a difference between, I think we've talked about it before, being opportunistic and speculating. There's a clear, massive difference. And speculating is usually tied in with quicker wins, a yep. little bit of greed, a little bit of ego. The what ifs. And too many what ifs. Mm. Go back to the Kino <laughs> scenario again. Being speculative, really, you need to be right many more times than you are wrong to survive. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's like going to the races. It's like mm. a house of cards, right? Well, you, it is. You're and- so dependent on getting it right. You get one wrong, you're gone. So that could be an area, a speculative yep. area, or it could be a speculative type of property such as a major development. Mm-hmm. Or buying in a zoned area and paying too much more just too much more for the property because it's got the zoning yep. scenario and there's no profitability perhaps in developing that block for the next 20 or 30 That's right. Yeah. Years. So when you're looking at those sorts of properties, really you should be evaluating it as a standard investment to begin with. Correct. And then the rest is cream on top. Yep. So what you're saying then is speculate. most people frame speculation as like some out there crazy idea, some super duper secret strategy that no one knows about and quick sign up today and you can benefit. But speculation is a lot simpler than that. You know, can be. And, you know, when you think of the statistics around how many people actually go from one to two, two to many properties, uh, most will end up with one property because they often speculate the first time around on it mm-hmm. where get they it get wrong. sold up some idea from whether it's their accountant or some seminar they've gone to of mm. buying some property out in a stick somewhere and developing and then they get stuck right. That's speculation. It is, or it could be around time as well. And I think the data is that most investors or a lot of investors will hold their properties for up to five years before they cash out because yeah. they've either, maybe they've made a great deal of money or maybe it hasn't performed to what their uneducated expectations were. Mm. They're expecting linear growth. Correct. And this sort of goes into point number five, Victor, it's around sort of shaping your strategy by tracing trends. I've seen this a lot from investors and no doubt you've seen a lot more of it where people are always changing their strategy because there's this new that's thing right. that's popped up. So yeah. the new shiny thing over there that's got all bells and whistles on it, they go, oh, yeah, that sounds great. I'm going to change my strategy or deviate mm-hmm. from it. Mm-hmm. I think it's become a lot more pronounced now with social media, mm. instant news. And if I can borrow a phrase from abroad, fake news in that sense. Mm. And this was there before, but because we're not able to put, or people were not able to put information out of brags out as prolifically as they can now via Facebook, Twitter and all that, it has become a real problem Mm. because you need to hone down on a strategy that's in line with your financial fingerprint and make sure that you give it enough time. And given that we sort of live in an instant gratification world these days, people are too impatient and they're chopping and changing way too often to be able to really get the fruits of the labor. You know, true investing, you really see your fruits of labor potentially a decade down the track. Mm. Yeah. Hence our design a decade mm. sort of scenario. And I, I that was our last podcast. That was our last podcast. Design your decade. I think social media platforms have changed the way that a lot of people invest. True. It's clearly changed the way that a lot of people digest information. Mm-hmm. And as further to what you said about instant gratification, which is all your social media platforms, people start to peg themselves against everybody else's story, mm. everybody else's results, everybody else's way of their doing diligence. And so, so that becomes the yardstick. That becomes the yardstick. And so an example would be in terms of chasing trends at the moment might be around off-market opportunities. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, if you're not buying an off-market opportunity, then it's not worth yeah. purchasing. Well, and where that's just clearly not the truth, and that's yeah. a whole big soapbox scenario. Newsflash, there's no such thing as off-market. 
No, well, very rare. Yeah, mm-hmm. 99.9% of the time off-market is pre-market and there's a True. very big difference. It's off-market where you just knock on someone's door and go, hey, you want to sell your property? Okay, so you got me. Oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Yeah, yeah. It's obviously it's a bit of an issue. Well, yeah, yeah. It is going to see a counselor around there. He's, the he's got all pepped up in his chest out now. <laughs> well, I had the couch last week. I think you relegated yeah, 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 yeah. so it. Um, look, the difference, there's a lot of rhetoric at the moment around off-market opportunity because it potentially gives you a better result because you've had first dibs at it and no one else has. Mm. Yeah. But as I said, there's a big difference between off-market and pre-market. So off-market is literally convincing or persuading ethically a person to sell their property when they had no intentions of doing so. So that might be because you own next door to it or behind it and it's a zoning play or a large land content, whatever it may look like. Mm. So they had no intention. So they haven't consulted a solicitor to draw up a contract to yep. sale. They've got no agent involved. There's just nothing. They had zero intention of selling it. Pre-market, however, is they had every intention of selling it and perhaps they're just in the stages of employing a, a real estate agent and getting the contracts drawn up. And the agent comes to you because of a good relationship that you have and say, heads up, I'm listing one Smith Street that suits your criteria. Mm. And so what a lot of people do is they hang their hat in terms of marketing on this off-market opportunity when it's really pre-market and they're not that special because everybody that's in the top 10 speed dial of the agent has got it. And you need to ask yourself the question is that why would a seller want to go off-market? Wouldn't they want the biggest exposure to the biggest portion of the market to get the best price? Yes. Why would the agent want to shortcut the process and just tell you as an off-market opportunity rather than expose it to everybody else because they need their reputation, they need their signboards and they want their results out there for the public so that they can get more listings. So bottom line is it's nothing but a marketing ploy out of what purchased a billion dollars <laughs> mm-hmm. worth of property over the last just 20 challenge years. Just the challenge though. And we've done maybe a dozen off-market, true off-market So pre-market then. So let's just challenge your point there. And this is not me disagreeing with you, but I imagine our listeners would, would be going, oh, okay, all right, that, fair enough. Wouldn't you say that an agent wants to get a listing off their book as quickly as possible and would want to sell it before having to spend any marketing expense around it or time around it? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So at the end of the day, the agent gets paid when – they sell the property mm. and it settles, yeah? But if they can't get the exposure, you know, sort of brackets, advertising for their brand, then- No one knows. No one knows. So how would they get the listing to begin with? Yes, sometimes an agent will go from point A to Z as quick as they can in mm. a direct line, say come to someone the like The markets us. may dictate that, but Take the market that. that we're in now, that won't happen because it's such a hot market for selling right now. You want to actually have as many people as possible competing over a property. You ask any real estate agent on the Eastern Seaboard at the moment- you don't want pre-market stuff. You don't want no. unless it's yeah. a stupid offer. They have not yet, unless it's a stupid offer, and then they'll mm. still you know whiz bang it up in terms of advertising and, and socials. But they have enough trouble at the moment trying to get listings. Mm. It's the shortest, tightest they've seen in decades. There is no way they're going to go to an off-market opportunity without promoting or self-promoting mm-hmm. themselves, and nor is a seller. So this comes back then. So market cycles, and we're talking about market cycles. Your experience in market cycles. In a seller's market, mm-hmm. you want as many people as competing as possible for the property to push the Correct. price up. In a buyer's market is when you're going to start getting a lot more pre-market stuff because people get listings. Listings are, are plenty and time on market is longer and Correct. it's harder to sell. That's when you're going to start getting phone calls from agents going, hey, Steve, I know you buy this sort of stuff. Do you want this? Correct. But it's still pre-market. Yeah. Okay. It's not yeah. off-market. Okay. I think we've sorted that out. And um, <clears throat> sort of connected with this um, – 
ego, really, because Steve's obviously got a massive one around this particular <laughs> issue. <laughs> Sorry, cutting on myself. But um, point number six around lessons learned. In, oh, you know uh, what? 20, I, wouldn't 20 call years. It, I wouldn't call it an ego. I would just call it's it a beef consumer it's a, awareness. There you as- go. Part of my role. There, I know. I think, I think it's good. You are an advocate and you always got the consumer in the best interest. So greed and ego kills investment strategies. Add one more to it. There's three things that kills an investment, right? Yeah. Greed, ego, or plain old stupidity. Yeah. Right? And, you, and stupidity normally more than the other ones, to be honest with you. Like, much, yeah, back yeah. to my point around yeah. trying to make more informed investors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of stupid investors around. I'm sorry, but so, 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 actually there's a fourth. Like yeah. if you've got the four, you know, four pillars of good wealth creation. There's mm. the four pillars of you know, how to kill yourself, greed, ego, stupidity, and laziness. Laziness. I'll well. tell you what, and this is a good point, and I say that there's a lot of stupid investors around and also a lot of lazy investors. They're not the people listening to this sort of stuff. They don't care. No. You know, they're not informing, not educating themselves. So, Correct. You know, so I'm not talking about our listeners there. I'm talking about the people that don't listen to podcasts. I was actually looking at you. Really? <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know what? I'm the first to put my uh, greed. No, no, I'm not greedy. Ego, no, but- Stupid sometimes. <laughs> Stupid because I don't invest enough time in my portfolio and lazy. I'm not saying lazy, but maybe a, a wrong priorities. R- wrong priority sometimes on my investors. So, yeah. So, maybe not laziness, poor priorities would be me. I'd go back to yeah. the ego thing, man. Yeah. To wear a suit like that, there's got to be a form of ego. <laughs> look, look at me, Stephen. You know, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a man about town, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll take a photo, put it in the show yep, notes, and, you, and let the listener be the judge. Uh, do you know what? Okay, let's do that. Let's take a photo of you, Victor, and me, and let's let our listeners work out or rate who's the best dressed yeah, person. I get to control the photo because I don't want you and your team photoshopping stuff out. Yeah, it's okay. Mm. <laughs> let us photoshop I put a little, in. A little puppy dog. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> you'll be sitting there with a big cigar, drinking a, <laughs> some sort of port or something around your fireplace on an evening, no doubt. Yes, yes. Yeah. Anyway. Greed and ego, Victor, yes, and, absolutely. and stupidity and yeah. laziness. Look, this is where people tend to fudge numbers, right? Because what they're really after is either trying to play catch up with their family, their mates, or someone that they want to show that, hey, I've got equivalent number of properties, or look at me, I, I own a property in this area. And then they start fudging the numbers as well in terms of making it work because they're so vested in actually buying the property because of the emotional rights rather than the wealth creation and the lifestyle the property uh, investing will bring. And if I take one of my own such mistakes, it was buying that the service department up the coast where it was pretty much greed, ego, plain old stupidity. Greed and ego because I thought, you know what, I'll bring my friends, my family, my clients here and uh, we'll have... We'll Big have, man we'll, on campus. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. That's it, right? And that was 10, 15... That was last week. Yeah. <laughs> that was 10, <laughs> 10, 15 years ago, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you know how many times I've been up there? About five times. Yeah. Where, uh, where is this, Jordan? Uh, this is up in Salamander Bay. Down the road. Down, down the, the road. She's buying Salamander Bay. I know. Down the yeah, road from mine. Great place. Yeah. I love it yeah, up yeah, there, yeah. you know. The plain old stupidity, yeah. I didn't even look at the numbers as closely as I would with any other properties I've bought. Because there was too much emotion and too much ego involved in it. Is it on the water? It is absolutely on the water. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's a nice part of the world. On the water of a like a (laughs) that that is one of my only negative cash flow properties. There's no way of making it positive. Yeah, there's no way. Yeah. When you sell it. 
ego. <laughs> yeah, or potentially. So because you know, if you sold it, then you go, okay, well, you know, yeah. but, so you're holding on to it because you're, you're egotistical it's, it's, about it's, it. Oh no, no, it's also yeah. got negative equity on it right now. Oh, that's what yeah. you need. You Ten probably need some of that. Yeah, yeah same as mine. Yeah. But yeah. like the reason we say stupidity is one of the sort of pillars of being a non-successful investor is because whilst it might sound a little bit harsh and confronting, there is an element of stupidity. Mm. In that deal yeah, and absolutely. mine as well. Mm. I haven't made any stupid buys yet. Yet. I say yet. Because we've made the mistakes <laughs> for you. Yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, and, and this is going to- I was gonna, trying to work out he's being cryptic then. I'm looking. No, I'm not being cryptic. It's a compliment. Oh, okay. I'll take Because it's going to get me to the next point around going it alone. You yeah. know, I've been able to mitigate major mistakes in my portfolio because I use you guys as my buyer's agent. So all the mistakes that you've made- You're leveraging I'm, off. I'm leveraging off. Mm. Yeah. So it's all about having this- team of people around you to help you out. Now, a lot of people want to do property by themselves. That's cool. You know, we talk Absolutely. about this a lot. Go and go and get it done, you know, and we're talking about, you know, um, stupidity and making stupid mistakes. There's a big difference between making a stupid mistake and just general stupidity, right? You know? But you need to be educated, you know, yeah. so you need to invest time, effort and attention into being a good property investor. That's the education piece. So mm-hmm. you, you can mitigate that. But then it's leveraging experience. And if you go about doing this by yourself, you're probably going to make some mistakes. Hundred percent. And we, if I look when I first started, there was no advice or advisory at that point in time. People got information differently back then. That's a big part of it, and that's mm. just as dangerous because of the way we can get information today and yeah. confirmational advice. So I, I literally had to make the mistakes and suck it and see, like pull the trigger on something, do it. Did that work? Yes or no? And it was just how good was the result going to be, or just how poor mm. the result was going to be. To give this context, though, you don't want to be making mistakes in property investment because they're hard to unravel. And they're big mistakes if you get it wrong. Now, if you buy the wrong car or you buy the wrong dress for a function or whatever, you know what? It's going to suck for a little while, but it's not going to cripple you. We're you, not talking tens of thousands. You're not of talking dollars. tens of thousands or locking up equity for mm-hmm. years and years and years. So you need to be drawing on experience. Yeah. And so there are experience and advisors around, you know, whether mm-hmm. that be accountants, mortgage brokers, investment advisors, the like, yeah. solicitors. It also goes deeper than that. It goes down to yeah. pesting and building inspectors, property managers. Yeah, it runs which very, pod, very which, deep. Which podcast you listen to? Which podcast you listen to? Very <laughs> correct. Absolutely, you know, because hopefully we're contributing to this going alone. And you got people out there doing this by themselves, but you know they've got they've got advocates on their side to help them out. You just need to listen to stuff like this. You're going to hopefully mitigate a lot of these mistakes, Victor. That's true. That's true. So if you look at where things are in terms of people investing right now. We've got so much information coming out. It's, it's almost like drinking out of a fire hydrant, mm. right? So you need a team around you to trickle that information down to make it pertinent to you so that it's what you need in your portfolio, in, in your goals and what you're trying to achieve. And of course, the advisors you need around you need to have the battle scars at the end of the day because that's the only way you'd keep it safe. So if you take an analogy back in the medical field, even though you are the ducks of the school, when you get to practice, you are mentored by someone that's five, ten years your senior mm. because there's one thing in textbook and practical and real life, be it in investing, be it in the medical field and all that, they're two different things because there's a lot more world knowledge that you need to apply to the textbook approach to make it actually pertinent to the market today. I'm happy you made that point, Victor, because it's, again, you know, it's like I planned this, but it's connected in with this next point. You spoke about there is literally so much it's information. It's just that I can read upside down, okay. so I saw it next <laughs> point. Yeah. If you can read that. You, you're yeah. Right. yeah, I've been trying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, even I can't read it. It's a squibble. But, you know, you spoke about this, so much information. Mm-hmm. So there's been this 
paradigm flip in how people True. receive information from investment. There is so much information out there right now that it stifles a lot of investment decisions. Mm. So my point number eight around you know, the lessons learned of, of you guys in this game for so long is action over inaction nearly every time. So Absolutely. what do they call it? Information paralysis analysis or paralysis whatever. analysis. Yeah, where, where you get so much stuff that you cannot actually make a decision. You can sometimes be too informed that stops you from taking action. Because you've got too much non-pertinent information. Or even too much information to be able to decipher and, and pick a path forward. Yep. I suffer mm. from that weekly in just general stuff and I've talked about and that And that's before. just this choice of shirts. Yes. Yeah. We'll be back to fashion, are we? That's why I wear the same shirt every day. I'm watching Phil look at me up and down there too. <laughs> well, I've got to say, it looks at me. That looks like it's from the 90s. You're probably wearing that when you started off doing this. I was. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's retro, heritage. is it now? Heritage. Yeah. Heritage listed. Heritage. You're yeah. re- <laughs> <laughs> but focus, Phil. Okay. It's, um, so, Action. But, yeah. So procrastination and, and mm. as I said, I – I do suffer from that with a lot of different things other than property because you do get so much information that you need to filter through to be able to make a a step to go Mm -hmm. forward. And often it's, you know, for me, if I just, like if I'm trying to buy a laptop and I've used this example before, it'll take me 12 months because I need to understand it inside out where I'm better off just saying to someone, here's a budget, go get me the best laptop that you can so that I can move on in life. But a lot of people tend to, want to understand everything, which is fine, but then not knowing which information to put in which box so that they can make exactly. a conscious decision exactly. to move forward. Because you'll miss markets potentially, but if that's the worst thing that happens, there's no financial loss there because you haven't got hurt money in. But it's a habitual thing mm-hmm. rather than a What do you do, Victor, process. when you sort of sit there and you work out that you're in this state where you, you know you need to make a decision, but you can't because you've restricted your decision-making? By too much information. How do you know when you're in that state? You know, sometimes it's a bit philosophical. Yeah, people do get into that stage largely because the why isn't big enough in their investing journey. So therefore, they're trying to overanalyze. So, and then they think I can't take a step wrong, and I'm not good at this investing. Ego, ego, as well as self doubt, right? Mm. But what they need to understand is that if you're playing a game, let's say you're playing soccer, when you're initially playing it may be that you actually suck at it because you've played the first game and someone's played a hundred ga- played a hundred games. So therefore the person that's played a hundred games, they will be more proficient. They'll know what moves to counteract and all this sort of stuff as opposed to you in the team for the first time. And the same with investing. If you're investing, you're trying to use the yardstick of people that have done it for 10, 20 years and they're a lot more successful and they've done multiple transactions and you're only just starting and trying to analyze everything around that. And that's what gets people on the back foot. So the key to that is to leverage off other people, leverage off other people's experiences rather than trying to do it alone. And, you know, there's a lot of forums, there's a lot of groups that meet. So long as they're all employing the same strategy and they're actually doers, Mm. not just talkers uh, in that group, Mm. you'd want to join them. And imagine this is, Steve, when you see a lot of people coming to you guys, you know, for help where they go, I've... I've got a deposit. I've been looking at buying property for three years, but I've never been able to do it. Is that when they sort of had this realization? Go, someone's got to change. Sometimes it's yeah. not. A, to be fair, though, it's not a great portion of people that mm. just you know wake up one day and say, you know what, I've been trying this for ten years. I'll I'll get help. Yeah. It's more around the epiphany they have of there's no goal for them, there's no end result for them, and there's an awakening in terms of I'm not going to have enough potentially for retirement, or there is actually a way that I can do this. 
and the like. So it's around about the, just the knowledge base of what's possible versus what's not. And sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Mm. And uh, sometimes someone in this circle has actually done it with the same financial metrics. Correct. And they realize that, hang on, I need to get help. Yeah. And the positive of the social media platforms, as opposed to what we were talking about before, is that there is a certain element of awareness now of what is True. potentially possible. Mm -hmm. It's just them being able to pick the right sponsored ad, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of there's some very good operators there is. out there. Yeah. And, and there is some less than good operators out there, but that's not my job to say who they are and who they are. It's your job as a property investor to work that out. Correct. And hopefully the conversations like this help. Point number nine, Steve, I'm going to put this one to you. 20 years of, of investing the right property group, Victor and Steve's experience. You've got to have a good relationship with debt. Absolutely. And what I'm talking about there is real appreciation between productive and non-productive debt. I think and the first the thing to do thing. is understand what is the difference. Yeah. Or as Robert Kiyosaki said, doodads, was it? An appreciating, yep. an appreciating asset. So non-productive debt is something that essentially you go into debt for that goes backwards in value. A car, Victor? Mm -hmm. Yeah, productive. <laughs> there it comes. You leave my Bentley alone. <laughs> it's got two batteries, right? Uh, that's it. Yeah, How much okay. are the batteries? Oh, don't even ask. <laughs> How much was the battery in your Toyota Surf? It's a forerunner. Sorry, forerunner, how dare I? It's a big difference because a surf is a, a an import, whereas a forerunner is a domestic vehicle. So it's a very different insurance right. uh, requirements around it. From the good friends from Holler for a Marshall, it was $94. Mm. Vic, yours? <laughs> $560 for one. <laughs> is that from Elon Musk from one of his spaceships? Is no, it? no, no, so no. 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 <laughs> it's just, just a battery that's just got Bentley written on it. <laughs> Productive and non-productive Productive, non -productive productive, debt. yeah, so yeah. don't go into debt for a, yeah. Yeah, for a car if you can help it. But I think most people at one point or another are very scared of debt. You know, there's a lot of zeros there. Mm -hmm. It's how am I going to pay it back? What do I do if this happens, if that, if that? So it's all negative, negative, negative. And, and whilst I believe you, you need to always prepare for the worst. If you actually look at the worst case scenario and have you got yourself covered and then make a move from there, yep. then you'll sleep easy at night. But also now coming back to modeling though, and whilst we talked about you know, modeling using lineal projections and what have you, you can actually do some modeling for yourself around your own household budgets hmm. and knowing what your income and expenditure is. Well, uh, to begin with, you need to know what your household budget is, what your expenditure is to begin with. Yeah, and 90% yeah. of people don't. Hmm. But having a healthy relationship with debt whilst being super aware and respectful of it, knowing the different types of debts I think is is clinical and there's a yeah. lot of stuff written around this we've spoken about it on the yeah, podcast before you know it's, it's a tough one to look can, probably for myself right obviously coming in from fiji that my relationship with debt was very different in the sense that we didn't take out loans mm. to then flip around and take multiples in loans one of the key things that i realized was that within reason it's not the number of zeros you need to look at it's the number of dollars per week to hold those number of zeros that you really need to look at so that it becomes something that's not uh, squashing your lifestyle. And that's what matters at the end of the Which day. Which comes back to point one, cash flow cash management. Cash flow, yeah. Mm. Yep. It's funny, it's an interesting point you make, Victor. Um, you know, Australia's a great place to live and, mm -hmm. and it's a very vibrant, multicultural society here and, and that's what's making it such a great nation. You know, your journey and your book, which I've read, it's very interesting. Culturally, you had a, a different relationship with debt, and mm. it's, it's sometimes hard for people to have that paradigm shift. Have that paradigm shift. Mm. I was going to shake those cultural norms, uh, yeah. and sometimes it takes generations. It does to do that. You know, but you know, I'm not saying 
a relationship with debt with a lot of debt is a good cultural norm. Not necessarily. You know, there, yep. there's some cultures yep. which is cash, cash, cash. And mm-hmm. I think that's brilliant. You know, if you can pay with everything cash, great. Mm-hmm. You know, so those people, they find themselves in going through that journey of trying to get a different interpretation of debt or how debt can help them potentially change their life in a particular way. How did you trigger that? You just went went around and it's did education. It. It's, it's education. It's education. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and another thing that I need to add over here is that in Australia, we seem to be honoring, you know, wearing debt as a badge of honor. Yeah, uh, good point. And that's something that we need to be mindful of as well because mm. we need to have debt within reasonable means so that we are able to pay it off or actually minimize it significantly so that we're not carrying on a large amount of debt into retirement. Mm. I think that's a, that's a really good point. And I was thinking about that just before you said it, that we tend to wear it as a badge Absolutely, of honor. Absolutely, yeah. And you need to have a healthy respect mm. of debt. Just because it's an income-producing asset doesn't mean that you should just, the more the merrier and the better mm-hmm. I'll be off in the long run because yep. it's how you control it. And once Otherwise, it, it'll control you. Very good point. Mm. And... Yeah, when we look at all the, the ABS figures and everything about the banks and APRA being a little bit concerned about household debt, there's a difference between, once again, productive debt mm-hmm. versus credit card debt, loan debt, <laughs> TV, couch debt, Harvey Norman. Debt. I think it's brilliant, you know, and my relationship, I, I Does saying, Lowe's have store cards as well? It that does, yeah. actually. VIP yeah. over here. Yeah, yeah. VIP. <laughs> well, why are you going to give Lowe's a hard time? I'm sure I'm going to get a phone call, you know, about you because- Why me? It's, well, because you guys are picking on Lowe's. No, I'm we're actually promoting it. Yeah, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's an invoice in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> but this – see, I think I have a good relationship with debt. I don't have any debt other than debt against property. Correct. It's the only debt I've got. You know, yep. I don't, don't have debt mm. against cars, debt against anything I've bought, debts mm. against – there's no business debt, you know. I have a good relationship with productive debt, you know, yep. and, and, and I frame it the way you do, mm. you know. How much is it costing me, negative, positive, each week, each month, to, mm-hmm. to hold the debt that I have? That's exactly right. That's yep. a good so, so, yep. you know. And for the listeners, now, if you're not in that position now where you still got you know car debts and all that, it is a starting point, right? So when you're investing, one of the goals you should have is to actually get rid of this consumer debt over a period of time and not carry it you know, longer than you need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fix your stuff up before you... Uh, Get the house in order before you can be an effective property responsible. Yeah. yeah, and that, that allows you to do, which is our, our final point here, and, and I've, I've written it down, the power of the pivot. So, you know, planning and strategy and, and your connectivity with and relationship to that planning and strategy, if you're in the game and you know where you're going, allows you to make decisions to evolve mm. that over time. And in many cases, that's because of market cycles. You know, you need to know what your strategy is in order to capitalise on market cycles and buy the right property. So, you know, people pivot all the time, but pivoting is not, Steve, completely to that point number five around shaping your strategy around different trends, two very different things. It's about being reactive to not just your own position, but perhaps to the market to take advantage of it rather than to react to it to defend yourself. Mm. Because hopefully your defence has already been mitigated Mm -hmm. to by building up buffers and cash flow reserves and what have you. Being able to pivot is crucial because it's not let's just create a strategy and set that in stone and never deviate. There will be minor deviations along the way and that's just a fact of life because once again, coming back to modelling, you just can't model 10, 20, 30, 40 years out. There is too many inconsistencies. So all of those points, including the last one about being able to pivot, all need each other. They're all part of a bigger picture. Every single time. So if we if we address, you know, what would be the circumstances where you would have to pivot? One would be lending constraints. Yep. Yeah. And, and that we've just gone through that. The other is 
changes in family, right? Your addition of family, maybe you got married, maybe you got, uh, you know, got a child, changes in employment, style of employment, where you've gone from PAYG to self-employed or vice versa, because that requires an adjustment to the plan. A good example would be controlling a property that has enough land content to add a secondary dwelling. As mm-hmm. an example, I'm not saying this should be the only type of property that you should get, but if you control one or two of those within your portfolio and you see all the lead indicators of rates going up or what have you, one of the things you could do would be get into earlier to construct the secondary dwelling to yep. boost cash flow so that it builds that mitigation mm-hmm. in and around you and add equity and cash flow to your position as well. So I'm going to make an executive decision, Steve, because we've run on quite long. I'm not going to do a question this time around. We'll, sure. we'll, we'll stand back there for next time. I've really enjoyed that conversation, those 10 – 10 lessons learned from the experience that you guys are investing. And I think back to the point around leverage other people's experience, the good, the bad, and the ugly to be a more capable property investor. Another thing is this whole piece around education. On that note, you've got some interesting webinars coming up, Steve. What's going on? 3rd of December, 7.30 p.m. We'll be doing another uh, webinar around the five essential steps to controlling a multiple property investment portfolio. Is that more than one? More than one. Could be two. Could be two. Could be 22. Because things change when you go from one to two. two very, to very quickly. Yeah. You, know, you never learn as much as when you've got some hurt money yep. rather than being theoretical. And so if you want to register for that on, once again, 3rd of December, 7.30 p.m. Tuesday. just That's Sydney time. Sydney time. Questions at rightpropertygroup.com.au. The other thing is, too, we have been inundated since we put, I think it was a couple of episodes ago now, where we said if you're interested in getting a copy of our portfolio tracker. Yep. Just reach out and we're happy to share that with you. And every week we'd be getting 20 or 30 requests. So if you're only new to the podcast, we did mention that. If you would like a property portfolio tracker, just reach out once again to questions at rightpropertygroup.com.au. Excellent. And keeping in touch with Right Property Group, best way, social media? Social media or, again, questions at rightpropertygroup.com.au. Cool. Any questions around this in particular? And I know Victor's going to go away now and write a nice blog about this and put it up <laughs> on the site and, and we're happy to share that on smartpropertyinvestment.com.au as well. I think that's a really good way that we've sort of condensed those 10 points and there's some pretty sophisticated investment themes in there into one. So experience counts is how I would sum up this particular podcast. And there's two different ways to get experience. You can Pay for it, as in get yourself a good advisor, and that's what I do. Or you can go and make those mistakes yourself and uh, learn over time. So you get to make that choice as a property investor. Both of them are good strategies, and uh, keep at it. It's a good game to be in. Gentlemen, thanks again, and uh, just shout again to our our farmers and regional folk doing it tough out there. Help them out any way you can. There's some uh, great ways that you can donate right across a number of different outlets. Uh, We'll be back again next time. Until then, bye-bye. The information featured in this podcast is general in nature, does not take into consideration your financial situation or individual needs and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property or financial planning decision, you should consult a licensed professional who can advise whether your decision is appropriate for you.